I'd like to ask you to uh, turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I'd like to begin this morning with a little quiz for all of you. I'm going to give you the name of a well-known church from history and I want you to tell me what is the name that immediately comes to mind that you associate with that famous church. Okay, everybody understand the quiz? First church, Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Who? Martin Luther. Come on, you, you guys know that's the easy one. They get harder from here. <laughs> Cathedral of St. Peter in Geneva, Switzerland. John Calvin. St. Giles Cathedral in, in Edinburgh, Scotland. John Knox. My wife's not allowed to answer anymore. She's, she knows them all. <laughs> Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England. Charles Spurgeon. Tenth Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. James Montgomery Boyce. Extra credit if you know the other famous name from Tenth. Phil, uh, he kind of counts. Yes, Donald Barnhouse. Yes, Phil Reichen is second echelon. Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Tim Keller, everybody knows that one. I just run you through that little quiz to illustrate the fact that we tend to gauge the importance of a church in history based on usually its most gifted, its most powerful leader, its most... A prominent, famous person. But I don't think that's how heaven measures the significance and greatness of a church. I'm reminded of a famous quote. I actually tried this week to find the source of this quote, and I found out that many famous people have said it, and nobody knows exactly who said it first. But you've heard this before. You measure the greatness of a society by how it treats its weakest member. You measure the greatness of a society by how it treats its weakest member. I think in a very real way that applies to churches. The greatness of a church is known by how it treats its weakest members. Jesus once compared his church, the one he died for, 
to a bunch of poor and crippled and blind and lame people who received a gracious invitation to a great banquet only after the busy, successful people had made excuses and turned down the invitation. Just a reminder to you that that's who you are in the eyes of the world. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. More pointedly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, which we heard earlier, that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That we are to be known not in the world's definitions, by the world's measurements, by our weakness and our foolishness. And that's what it means to be great in the sight of God, is to have care and compassion for our fellow lame and blind and crippled ones. To understand that we all were unworthy of being invited to Christ's banquet. But he, by grace, has brought us in, not because we were worthy, but because we were willing to recognize our unworthiness. And if we recognize our unworthiness, that has, as we'll see in today's passage, some very strong implications for how we treat others who are seen as weak and crippled and blind in this world. In this letter, as we have seen, Paul is instructing young, timid Timothy on how to be a pastor in the church. And it's just striking to me that he devotes such a long section in a relatively short book of the Bible. He devotes such a long section to how to care for widows. I think we need to take note of that. That in Timothy's ministry, as Paul stresses to him the importance of preaching the word of God, discipling believers, of warning against false teaching and confronting false teachers, that he decides to spend such a long time talking about how to care for widows. Such, such a long section that we're actually going to take it in two sections. This is only part one this week. In order to understand why this is so important to Paul, is you need to understand who widows were in the first century. It's a little different. The application, I think, is a little different here in the 21st century. But in the first century, widows, especially older widows, were the most destitute by and large, the most destitute, most dependent, and most vulnerable people in the society. They didn't have means of support much of the time. Imagine a world where there isn't any life insurance for widows when their husbands died. There isn't social security. There aren't 401ks. There aren't nursing homes. None of these things exist. And to make it worse, when a husband would die, her husband would die, the inheritance, unlike today, if I died, all of my belongings, all of my possessions, what such as they are, would go to my wife. Don't get excited. <laughs> In that day and age, it went to the sons, not to the wife. And yes, there often was the expectation that the sons and grandsons would take care of their mother and grandmother, but often they didn't. And so there were many widows that were truly destitute in that society. And so in scripture, you'll see the phrase over and over again, from beginning to end, you'll see the phrase orphans and widows. Orphans and widows were 
that became actually over time a shorthand way of saying those that are most needy in your midst. The people who have the greatest needs in the eyes of the world. Those people get special care and attention in the word of God. The Bible repeatedly emphasizes God's special concern for orphans and widows. Those that are the weak in the eyes of the world, the vulnerable. It's all the way back in the law of Moses. Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 22, beginning in verse 22. It says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. That's what the law of Moses said about God's concern and his commitment to protect and defend the widow. In the law of Moses, it said that tithes were to be given to the priesthood to the te at the temple. And the tithes were to be used, a portion of those tithes were to be used to feed the orphans and the widows. Farmers, or really basically everybody in that agricultural culture in Israel, they were supposed to leave the corners of their field. They were supposed to leave sheaves that they had gathered in the field for the widows to come so that they'd have something to live off of. That's according to God's law. Psalm 68 verse five says, the father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 146 verse nine, the Lord upholds the widow and the fatherless. And then Isaiah chapter one, verse 17 says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So many times when the Old Testament prophets cry out for justice in Israel or justice among the nations, the particular concern is for the abuse, the oppression, the taking advantage of the widow and the orphan. God sent Elijah to raise the son from the dead of the widow of Zarephath. God sent Elisha to a widow to provide oil for her so that her sons wouldn't have to be sold into slavery. Jesus raised from the dead the son of the widow of Nain. Jesus honored the widow who came to the temple and put in the two small coins because that's all she had. And Jesus stood firmly and repeatedly condemned those who, as in his words, devour widows' houses. You see, Jesus was God in the flesh and had the same concern for the widow. Think about it. The apostles appointed an office in the church to care for widows. Acts chapter 6. The reason that the office of deacons was established was to make sure that widows were cared for. That's how important this ministry is. James chapter 1 verse 27 sums it all up. It says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To show the mercy that God has shown and grace that God has shown to you, to all, but especially to the orphan and the widow, to care for them in their affliction, and to pursue holiness. That's the summary of the Christian life. To love God and love your neighbor, particularly the weakest among us. The fatherless, the orphans, and the widows represent the most needy, vulnerable, and dependent in the church. 
Now, I recognize in this day and age that widows often are well off because we've set up these things like life insurance and, and investments, and they're often the widows are not the weakest and most vulnerable in our midst. So as I go through what Paul is saying here about widows, just keep that in mind, that they're, first of all, often widows, their needs in this day and age are not material, they're relational. I know a lot of lonely, lonely widows. They have all the material things they need, but they need to be loved and cared for. But often our most vulnerable, our most weakest members in the eyes of the world are not widows in this day and age. So I just want you to be thinking about that. I know I wrestled with it through the week. Who are the needy among us? Who would correlate to the orphans and widows in our midst, in our community, and particularly in our church? We want to be a great church. And what Paul is telling us here is if you want to be a great church, you need to care well for the weakest among you. Many will point to how much outreach a church has to determine whether it's healthy or not. How much outreach to the community outside the walls. But what Paul is trying to tell us here is that it's more important that we care for the needy within the church. You don't need to feel bashful about saying that. It is a higher priority to care for the needy in our own midst. Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 Paul says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially to our own spiritual family, the household of faith. That ought to ring a bell for us if, we've been, if you've been with us through these studies in 1 Timothy because it was back at the end of chapter 3 that Paul introduced this whole section of instructions to Timothy about how we should live in the church and work in the church. And this is how he says it in verses 14 and 15. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The church is God's household. The church is God's family. And in order to understand your obligation to the weakest in our midst, you need to understand, first and foremost, we are family. I am a pirate fan. I live by that motto. We are family. We are family. And I, you know, I think we talk about that. We use the language in the church all the time. But we don't take it as seriously as scripture wants us to take it. Great churches have a family commitment to one another. Timothy was a timid young pastor. And Paul here begins by teaching him as he preaches the word of God, as he disciples believers, as he confronts false teaching, does all these things that Paul's been telling him to do, he needs to have people skills. He needs to do it the right way. It's not just about what he's saying. It certainly needs to, his content in his teaching and preaching needs to be biblical, but he needs to deal with people well, graciously, in light of the gospel, as part of God's family. Young pastors, and I'll admit, I was definitely in this category when I first came out of seminary, young pastors often don't have good people skills. They need to learn through hard experience how to develop these people skills, and that's what Paul's getting at here. He's teaching Timothy how to speak the truth in love. And so he says to, to Timothy in verse 1, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. When I go to Presbytery or General Assembly 
and somebody gets up to stand at the microphone to talk, they'll often usually begin by their address to the whole group of the Presbytery of the General Assembly. They'll be, begin by saying, fathers and brothers. That's a Presbyterian tradition, but it comes right out of this verse. That as they speak to these other pastors and elders, they recognize that they're speaking to some who are spiritual fathers and some who are spiritual brothers. It's an attempt to be faithful to this. We are to treat older men as fathers and older women as mothers. You realize what that's implying? How are we to treat fathers and mothers? Back, go back to the Ten Commandments. Number five, honor your father and your mother. You are to treat those who are more experienced, more advanced in age and more experienced in the kingdom, you are to treat them as spiritual fathers to honor them, to respect them, to speak with kindness and gentleness, even and understand this is Timothy who is going to have to confront some of them for the false teaching that they might have been slipping into. So even when you have to correct them, he says, don't rebuke them in a harsh way. Speak to them as you would speak to your father. If you were to see your father doing something wrong, how would you say it to him? I'm not talking to you 14-year-olds. Don't say it the way you would say it to them. Talking about mature people, how you would talk to your father. John Stott said in his commentary, give them the respect due to age and affection due to parents. It's a good motto to live by. As you deal with those who are your elders, not necessarily the office of elder, but elders in terms of age, you are to treat them as fathers and mothers. Give them the respect due to age and affection due to parents. And then he goes on to say to treat younger men as brothers and younger women as sisters. What that means is to treat them as equals. In our culture, we have such a tendency to have chronological snobbery, to think that if somebody's younger than we are, that they don't deserve our respect. We need to talk down at them. We need to patronize them. He said, no, speak to them as equals. You are, they are equally sinners saved by grace in the church family, and they are equally brothers and sisters in the family of God. Treat them with respect as equals. And he gives a special caution there, did you notice, to how to speak to and deal with younger women. He says to do it in all purity. And I think there Paul is recognizing the special danger that church leaders have in ministering to the young women in the congregation. Recognizing the sexual temptation that's there. And we are living in an age in the church where we're being devastated by church leaders that are not taking this instruction to heart. Church leaders that are not treating the young women and even the young men in the church as sisters and brothers in all purity. It's killing our witness in the culture. It's dividing and destroying the church. It's rampant. We need to pray for God to send a revival, a spirit of repentance upon the church for the way that our leaders have let us down by not treating young men and young women in all purity. These are sisters, these are brothers. We're to love them the way sisters and brothers ought to be loved. One day Jesus was inside a house and someone came to him as he was teaching, interrupted him and said, Jesus, your, your mother Mary and your brothers are outside the house and they wanna to talk to you, you better go talk to them. And he said, who are my brothers and my sisters? 
And he pointed to all those disciples that were sitting attentively under his teaching, listening in faith. And he said, these here are my brother, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and my sister and my brother. Very important lesson that your church family, and it certainly extends beyond the local church, but it's, it's focused upon the local church. Your church family is your eternal spiritual family with God as your father and Jesus as your older brother. And that is your first family. That family takes precedent all, over all other relationships in your life. And your commitment to one another needs to reflect that. Like I said, I don't think we take that seriously enough. But Paul goes on to say that the church, he makes it clear though, that the church doesn't replace the family. Churches are made up of Christ-centered households. And so he talks about the responsibility of caring for the weak and the needy among us. He goes to the Christian households first to make sure they understand that among the broader family of the church, the family, family uh, under the father and the mother, that family, that household is the first that has responsibility. Look at verse four. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. It's interesting that the rest of the passage is gonna contain a lot of qualifications for a woman to be considered a widow. But the first one he's actually laying out here is that a widow is not just a woman who has lost her husband. A widow, as Paul is defining it, is a woman who has lost her husband and is not being cared for by a family. That's the church's definition of a widow. Is a woman who has lost her husband and either she has no family to care for her needs or her family is not willing to care for her needs. Then she's qualified to be looked at as a widow in the eyes of the church. Someone who depends upon the church. Someone who has the right to expect the church to care for her. In verse five, it says she has to be left all alone. And therefore she becomes under the care of the church. It's the family that is the first line of compassion and care for the weak and the needy in our midst. We talk about safety nets. We talk all, usually talk about the government when we're talking about a safety net for people who need care. But the church is really the safety net. The family is the first responsibility, but if the family can't or won't do its job, then the church needs to be there for the weak and the needy. And we need to make that commitment. Paul gives two motivations for caring for the widows in the family. The first one is to make some return to the parents. He's literally saying to pay back the parents. And in, in a good family, in a healthy family, it's unthinkable that the children would receive so much sacrifice. As I watch the families in our church raise children, I'm reminded of the incredible sacrifices that are made to provide for children, to raise them, to train them, to discipline them, to have, make sure they have what they need. How can you then get to adulthood and see your parents and particularly your mother in need and not care for her? It's unthinkable, isn't it? So Paul appeals to that. They've done so much for you. But then he's, he would have to acknowledge that sometimes they haven't. Sometimes the father has left. Sometimes the mother has been abusive. Maybe it's been a bad situation. Well, then he gives a second motivation. 
for this is pleasing in the sight of God. God is the protector of widows. It's his will that his families, Christ-centered families, reflect his grace and love towards those who are in great need. Then in verse 8, Paul uses very strong language to make his point. He says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I can't imagine him laying this more strongly upon us. He's saying, in the verse before that, he says he doesn't want us to have any reproach. And he's talking about reproach in the community. The world should not be able to look at the church and see widows, orphans, people that are weak and needy without their needs being met by the church family because it destroys our witness. That's what he's saying. You know, as bad as our culture has gotten, as far away from biblical, a biblical worldview and biblical morality as our society has gotten, I can tell you without any doubt that family is still a core value. Yes, they're redefining family, and there are a lot of broken families, but still, I guarantee you that a foundational truth is that family is of utmost importance. I know that because I watch movies. You can't, it's hard to find a movie that doesn't have as a central storyline to the movie the importance of family. It's amazing how consistent that is, because it's so important to this culture. It's what they hang on to in all their insecurity. Family matters. Family is most important. I can break all other commitments, but I'm not going to break my commitment to my family. This culture gets that. So what if they look at the church and the spiritual family is not care taking care of their own? What if families that claim to live under the lordship of Christ and live for the glory of Christ, that have believed the gospel message, can turn around then and disregard the needs of the weak and needy among them? Over in 1 John chapter 3, Paul's saying the same thing that John says here. 1 John 3, beginning in verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You can't say you believe the gospel and then deny the gospel by refusing to care for those that are genuinely hurting and vulnerable. We've been shown incredible grace. God the Father has sent his only begotten son to live in our midst, to live a life of perfection, which was to be granted as a gift to us who have faith in him, to go to the cross and die on the cross to pay for every sin that we've committed raised from the dead, giving us victory over sin and death for all eternity, to be a part of God's family. All of this is grace. We deserve none of it. How can that not affect the way that we treat those who are weak and needy in our midst? Paul says you deny your faith if you're not willing to do that. And then Paul, in verse 5, goes on to talk about what's expected of the actual widows, those who receive this this gracious gift of support from the church. What's expected of them? And the irony is, is that Paul says that those that the world looks at and calls weak and needy are actually often some of the spiritual giants in our midst. Sometimes they are the ones that are strong in faith and serving the Lord so faithfully. And that's the picture he gives us at the end, that great churches are made up of people who the world calls weak, 
but are actually strong in the kingdom of God in faith and service. In verse 5, he says, she who is truly a widow, living in dependence upon the, the, the generosity of the church, left all alone, has, her hope set on, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. She may be weak in the flesh, but she is strong in the spirit. Next week, we're going to look at verse 10. And it says there that the widow must have a reputation for good works. She must be serving in the church, serving others. In other words, she must be a faithful member to be considered a widow that's under the care and support of the church. One who gives evidence of a real faith in Christ that's reflected in her character and her actions. You see, if the church is supporting her, in, in many cases, in the first century, these widows weren't able to work, especially if they were older. If the church is supporting them, then that frees that widow up. She is able to serve the Lord in ways that full-time working people can't do it. And so she's able to devote herself to prayer. And one thing that really strikes me here is that Paul emphasizes the importance of the ministry of prayer in the church. That for a church to be great, for a church to be healthy, for a church to be vital, for the church to make a difference in the world, it's got to be bathed in prayer and all that it does. And what a great calling for a widow that's being supported by the church. Someone who is able, has the time, the focus, the ability to pray for everything that's going on in the church and every need that's in the church, the people of the church. It's such an important ministry and we don't emphasize it enough. One shining example was Anna. You remember Anna? She was the one who practically lived at the temple. She obviously was being supported. And she lived at the temple day and night. And it says, in, as she was waiting and had the blessed opportunity to see the baby Jesus when he was brought to the temple to be uh, presented, she, it says she was advanced in years. She didn't depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting with prayer night and day. And the Lord rewarded her with a vision of her Messiah. Another example is Dorcas or Tabitha in Acts chapter 9. There's a beautiful story there where all the widows, the widows that were being cared for for the church, they were all friends. You could see they had this, this, this ministry together. And they gathered around because Dorcas had died. And it describes Dorcas in this way in Acts 9. It says, she was full of good works and charity. She was a widow who was faithful to her vows to the Lord and to the church. You see, when those that are looked upon by the world as weak are strong in Christ, it's a powerful testimony to who Christ is and what he has done for us. Paul's thorn in the flesh taught him that. He spoke from that experience. Paul was weak in the flesh. We're not entirely sure what his weakness was. He talks about his eyes. People think he may have been almost blind. We don't know, but he had some physical weakness. And he talks in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, beginning in verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the great calling for those that are weak in our midst, is that as they grow in Christ, as they serve, as they pray, 
as they make a difference for the kingdom in ways that the world doesn't even recognize. We see the power of Christ at work in the church. But then one more point I need to make is that Paul goes on in verse six to say that there are some widows who seem to be asking for help from the church but shouldn't be given it. He makes reference there to she who is self-indulgent, who is dead even while she lives. There were some obviously, and there still are, some widows, some needy people in the church that cry out to the help, ask the church for help, but the church should say no because that person is living selfishly for themselves. They're seeking the rewards and, and pleasures of this world. They're indulging their, their lust of the flesh. They are not living as faithful disciples of Christ. We're gonna see next week that some of the younger widows in Ephesus were going this route. And Paul says, don't, don't put them on the role of widows in the church. An important message for the church is here. That we must, yes, give freely to those in need. But again, remember who are the true widows as scripture defines them. It's not just women who lost their husband, but women whose families did not care for them. But not just widows whose family did not care for them, but widows who are living faithfully to the Lord Jesus Christ, who are truly part of the church family, the spiritual family. We need to hold our members accountable to their vows. They have made vows to the Lord to be part of the spiritual family. And if they are living unfaithfully, then we need to exercise what we used to call tough love. When they cry for hope, sometimes we have to say no because that help would only facilitate and encourage the sin that is ruining their lives. And so with the generosity and care and grace that comes from the church family, there's also accountability when the scriptures are truly being followed. The church must love the needy, but not by enabling them to continue in their sin. So back to the original point, we wanna be a great church. We want people to talk about Oakwood as being a great church. And certainly that's gonna come from preaching the word of God, being faithful in biblical doctrine, discipling people well, doing great outreach in the community. These things will give us that truly kingdom reputation of being a great church. But it's caring for the needy that is the true test. The needy in our midst, the broken, the vulnerable. I want to read to you of another great church, in the church in Jerusalem in the first century, which was under the direct leadership of the apostles. Listen to the description of that church in Acts chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. We are so often so quick to point out that this scripture based on all the rest of scripture does not teach socialism. <laughs> we're so quick to jump to that point that we forget what the main point is, is that we need to be willing to sacrifice of all the possessions that God has placed in our hands to meet the needs 
of all the needy in our midst. That must be our testimony. We must be driven to fulfill that description that there are no needy people in our midst. And like I said, in a prosperous culture like this, often the needs aren't financial. They're often much more complicated and actually require more sacrifices than that. I once, uh, we, there was a nursing home that was just down the, just about an eighth of a mile from my church in Philadelphia. And we kind of adopted that church. We started having, or that nursing home, and we started having monthly services there. And then um, we, we went to them one day. We had an idea. We wanted to have our families, our households in the church, adopt a needy elderly person in this nursing home. And so we asked the, the, the administration there, we said, could you just give us a list of names of some of the older women especially, but older men that don't have any family visiting them on a regular basis? We thought we might get five or six names and we could easily find five or six families to adopt those people. We got a long list. Seemed, like a, it seemed to us like a majority of the people in that nursing home did not have family regularly visiting them. I'm just trying to say, you know, that's an outreach. But think about the lonely people in our midst. Who needs to be reached out to? There's not a needy person among us. We want to get to the point where we can say that. Caring for our own must be the first goal of our mercy ministry. Not to the exclusion of meeting the needs in the community, but in reach is the essential first stage to outreach. How are we doing? Who do we need to reach out to? Let's pray. Father, thank you that so often the teaching of scripture is counterintuitive. When Paul talks to Timothy about how to grow a strong and great church, we always want to hear about administration methods and and teaching methods and outreach methods. And Paul's first, one of his first concerns is that we care for the needy in our midst because the gospel is true, because we are weak and needy in your sight. We are undeserving of any good gift from you. And you have shown us so much grace because of what Christ did for us. Father, help us to live out the gospel within our own church family and then within the community. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.